Hello, and welcome to The Space Above Us. Episode 103, Space Shuttle Flight 32, STS-33. Magnum, maybe. Last time, we talked about the fifth flight of Space Shuttle Atlantis, STS-34. The mission was the second shuttle flight to deploy an interplanetary spacecraft, starting the Galileo orbiter and probe down the lengthy road to Jupiter. Before we get started today, I have two minor corrections. First, back on episode 99, talking about STS-30, I seemingly confused Norm Thagard and Bill Thornton. Both men flew on STS-51B, performing experiments on Spacelab, but since I mixed them up, I implied that Thagard had been involved in the Skylab Medical Experiment Altitude Test. As you'll recall, this is when Bob Crippen, Carol Bobko, and Bill Thornton were locked into a Skylab mock-up for 56 days to try to find out what issues the real Skylab crews would run into. Thornton enthusiastically took to his task, breaking all sorts of equipment and probably saving the Skylab crews some trouble. Thagard did not do that. Minor thing, but still, I was embarrassed to realize that I had crossed the streams. The second correction is less of a mistake and more of me sort of burying the lead. Last time, I mentioned how it was fortunate for the STS-34 crew that their flight was delayed by a day, since several hours after the scheduled launch, there was a large earthquake in California. Had the launch gone off on October 17th as planned, the earthquake would have forced the evacuation of the control center for the inertial upper stage, right as Galileo was being deployed. That's true, but what I failed to mention, because I didn't realize it at the time, was that this was like THE earthquake, one of the biggest ones to hit California in recent times. The earthquake is perhaps most well known for disrupting the 1989 World Series and for causing a lengthy section of elevated highway to collapse, killing many people. It didn't impact our story directly, but I felt that the extra context was worth mentioning. Today, we'll be talking about STS-33 which is everyone's favorite type of shuttle mission, a classified mission. It's sort of incredible how this relatively small number of classified missions really sticks out, at least to me. Anyway, as usual with a classified mission, we don't know a ton about what actually happened, but we can make a few guesses and enjoy what details we do know. For example, the crew. Commanding the flight was Frederick Gregory. We know Gregory as the pilot of STS-51B, which performed a ton of experiments inside Spacelab. With this, his second of three flights, he became the first African-American shuttle commander. Joining Gregory up front was John Blaha. Hey, wait a minute, didn't we see John Blaha a few missions ago? Yeah, he flew as pilot on STS-29 in March, making Blaha one of the lucky few to fly twice in the same calendar year. Unfortunately, the reason for this rarity is due to a tragedy in the astronaut corps. The original pilot for this flight was David Griggs, who we saw as Mission Specialist 2 on STS-51D. But Griggs was killed in June of 1989 in a plane crash while flying a vintage World War II airplane. In fact, if you take a look at STS-33's mission patch, you'll see a single prominent star, which was added in tribute to Griggs. Since Blaha had just recently flown on STS-29, he was essentially fully trained and ready to go, so was slotted right into the pilot role for this flight. Blaha filled in for Griggs, making this his second of five flights. Starting with the mission specialists, MS-1 was Sonny Carter. Manly Carter, who went by the nickname Sonny, 
was born on August 15, 1949 in Macon, Georgia. He earned a bachelor's degree in chemistry from Emory University and stayed there to pick up a doctor of medicine degree four years later. After that, he joined the Navy, where he served as a flight surgeon and learned how to fly, including 160 carrier landings. In 1984, a month before he graduated from the U.S. Naval Test Pilot School, he was selected by NASA to become an astronaut. This was his first flight, and he was assigned to fly again on STS-42 a little bit down the road, but was killed in a commercial plane crash in 1991, making this his only flight. This mission has some bad luck with airplanes. Mission Specialist 2 was Story Musgrave, who we've seen a couple of times now. The last time we saw him was on STS-51F, the only shuttle flight to perform an abort to orbit. This is his third of six flights. And last but not least, Mission Specialist 3, Kathy Thornton. Catherine Thornton was born on August 17, 1952, in Montgomery, Alabama. She earned a bachelor's in physics, a master's in physics, and, you guessed it, a PhD in physics. She was awarded a NATO postdoc fellowship, allowing her to perform research at the Max Planck Institute for Nuclear Physics in Heidelberg, West Germany. When she got back to the U.S., she worked as a physicist at the United States Army Foreign Science and Technology Center and was selected as an astronaut in 1984. This is her first of four flights. As usually happens when I encounter a classified mission, I started dipping into sources that I often have to skip for the sake of time. One such source is the JSC News Roundup Newsletter. This is an internal newsletter for the Johnson Space Center, home of the Human Spaceflight Program. It was started sometime in the 1960s and continues to this day. And luckily for me, some kind soul at NASA took the effort to scan every one of these newsletters and make them available online. They're a pretty fascinating look into day-to-day -day life at Johnson. The reason I bring this up is that I noticed one story that's not related to this flight, but certainly helps add some insight into the mindset of NASA at this time. The story, which comes from the December 1st, 1989 issue of JSC News Roundup, is titled, Last NASA Unmanned Rocket Boosts Cosmic Background Explorer. The Cosmic Background Explorer, aka COBE, was a satellite dedicated to studying the cosmic background radiation. Just briefly, and honestly just for what I know off the top of my head, so please take it for what it is, the cosmic background radiation is a very low-frequency radio signal that's visible in all directions. The guys who discovered it were trying to do something completely unrelated and couldn't get rid of this annoying quote-unquote noise in their radio gear. It turns out that what they were actually hearing were the echoes of the Big Bang. When the universe was small and all smooshed together, it was incredibly hot. As it expanded and cooled, that energy got sort of stretched out. Eventually, it became just some weak radio waves, barely warmer than absolute zero. By studying that energy, scientists could learn about the structure of the early universe and perhaps learn about how galaxies were formed and all that good science stuff. The reason I brought it up is, that is one striking title. Last NASA Unmanned Rocket. People really believed that the shuttle was the future and that we'd never be going back to small, expendable launch vehicles. Or at least the person who wrote this article did. In any case, I thought that was pretty interesting. But I digress. We've got a mission to cover. Originally scheduled for November 21st, the launch had to be delayed for one day while a cable related to the SRBs was replaced. I'm sure most people didn't even notice, since as usual with a classified mission, the liftoff time was a tightly kept secret until just hours before launch. 
The next day, however, everything came together, and on the day before Thanksgiving, November 22nd, 1989, at 7.23 and 30 seconds p.m. Eastern Time, Discovery lifted off for the ninth time. It would have been a spectacular sight for everyone within a few dozen miles, and certainly not a secret, since this was the shuttle's third night launch. Notably, it was also the first night launch since the Challenger accident, which I think is safe to note as one more step down the road of post-accident recovery. By the way, if you're thinking 7.23pm, that's not a night launch, don't forget that it was in November. I actually went and looked it up, and the sun had set around two hours earlier, so there you go. So Discovery launched into some sort of secret orbit and deployed some sort of secret payload. But can we tell what? Sort of. We can at least narrow it down. While NASA won't tell us most of the parameters of SCS-33's orbit, they did say that the inclination was 28.45 degrees, which is basically as low as you can go out of the Kennedy Space Center. So that tells me one of a few things. Either they didn't particularly care what inclination they were in, so they went for an easy one, or maybe they had something heavy and needed the extra performance. Or what they really wanted to be in was an equatorial orbit for a geostationary payload. Alright, well, are there any other clues? Aha! According to Countdown Magazine, a contemporary space news publication, it was revealed from budget analysis and congressional testimony that the flight used an inertial upper stage. Well, that certainly helps narrow things down. As we've seen time and time again, the only reason to use an IUS is if you need to get to a higher orbit. Usually not quite as high as Galileo. Usually it's to Geo. Geoleo. <laughs> I don't really know where I was going with that. Anyway, that means that our payload is probably going to a geostationary orbit. Alright, so what kinds of classified payloads go to Geo? It's too far for photography, so a reconnaissance satellite is out. Well, at least one that's looking at the ground. It's possible something was snooping around and looking at other geosatellites, but I don't think that's the case here. It could be a communication satellite, along the lines of NASA's TDRS. We've even seen that before in the case of the SDS a few flights back. In this case, since I have nothing else to go on, I'm just going to go with what seems to be the community consensus. The payload of STS-33 was likely a Magnum Orion satellite. This Electronics Intelligence spacecraft, or ELINT, would park itself over a country, open a massive radio dish, and listen in on any stray signals. If this sounds familiar, it's because we deployed another one of these on STS-51C way back in January of 1985. If that's the case, then all this secrecy makes some amount of sense, even if the folks being listened to probably had a good idea of what the payload was. At some point in the flight, likely just a few hours into the mission, the IUS deployment cradle would have been tilted back, final tests and checks would have been performed, and Magnum, or whatever, would be gently nudged along on its way. I will say that the mission summary noted that the Ohm's engines were fired five times, which seemed unusual. Discovery launched on a standard insertion, using both the Ohm's 1 and Ohm's 2 burns on its way to orbit and it needed another Ohm's burn to return home, so that's three, and one more to back away from the IUS, and that's four. So I'm not sure what the fifth would have been, but maybe I'm just overthinking things. At first I thought maybe they just used two burns to back away from the payload, but that wasn't the case on Galileo, so I don't know. We'll just add it to the list of annoying mysteries on this flight. Despite the secrecy, we do get to know about a few things. 
For instance, only an hour and a half into the flight, the text and graphics system, or tags, jammed after printing 10 pages. The crew cleared the jam, and tags immediately jammed again. Oh well, back to the old teleprinter. As inconvenient as the tags malfunction must have been, a far bigger inconvenience loomed about 10 hours later. A malfunctioning waste collection system resulted in a small leak causing the cabin pressure to slightly drop. I say this is inconvenient because the waste collection system could be called something else. The space toilet. If the WCS could not be fixed, then the crew would be doomed to several days of the old Apollo-style bags. And you remember what Wally Shiraz's advice was with those. Get naked, allow an hour, bring plenty of tissues. Thankfully for the crew, the issue was able to be resolved. The in-flight maintenance folks on the ground earned themselves special praise from the lead flight director for helping the crew come up with a workaround solution that allowed them to continue using the toilet. So that's nice. Also, anyone keeping a Days Since the Space Above Us Talked About Pooping in Space sign can now reset it to zero. After a few days, it was time for the crew to head home. Except the weather was pretty iffy, so the landing was delayed first by one day and then by one revolution. In John Blaha's oral history, he tells a great story about the moment that the crew learned they'd be spending another day on orbit. They were all suited up in their seats, ready to go home, when the message came through. Most of the crew were elated, and immediately unstrapped to drift around and celebrate their extra day of microgravity and incredible views. But John Blaha knew that Commander Fred Gregory was not thrilled. He had told Blaha early in training that he didn't actually like being on orbit. He loved the ascent and the entry, but apparently his stomach didn't really agree with weightlessness, and he was always looking forward to getting back on terra firma. So while the rest of the crew did backflips, Fred Gregory groaned. Not exactly the reaction you'd expect from a space shuttle commander. Gregory sounds like a pretty funny guy, though. Again, based on the same oral history from Blaha, Gregory liked to try to put the crew at ease before re-entry. So shortly before the ohms burn, Blaha looked over and Gregory had two socks floating off of his ears. Just as a goof to get everyone to relax. Also, in the final seconds before the re-entry burn, he decided to play a little prank on mission specialist Sonny Carter. Apparently, during training, Carter had often said something to the effect of, You guys up front are always doing stuff. Why can't I push a button once? So, with only 30 seconds left before the entry burn, Gregory got on the comm loop and said, Hey Sonny, you said you never got to do anything. You want to do something? Sonny duly responded, Yes boss, what do you need? Gregory said, well, someone's got to execute the burn. It's got 15 seconds and counting down. 14. Carter was surprised and said, you got to be kidding me. Man, I get to do this? Oh yeah, just go ahead. Push the execute button. But you got to do it before it counts down. The count got down to 5 seconds before, presumably, Gregory just pushed the button himself. At first, I was slightly puzzled why this was so funny until I checked and saw that Sonny Carter was securely strapped into his seat down on the mid-deck for re-entry, nowhere near any of the flight deck buttons. Oh well. Since we're still a little short on this episode, thanks to the Department of Defense, how about a few fun facts? I often come across interesting facts and figures in the mission reports that I just don't have a good reason to bring up in an episode. But since we have a little extra time, let's just blast through a few of them. Over the course of the mission, the reaction control system burned through about 4,300 pounds of propellant, 
including dumping any remaining fuel out of the forward RCS module. And all that is just on attitude control and small maneuvers. Using even more propellant were the Ohms engines, burning through around 14,000 pounds of oxidizer and around 8,000 pounds of fuel. The fuel cells churned through 1,162 pounds of oxygen and 146 pounds of hydrogen, creating 1,308 pounds of pure water, exactly what you get by adding up the amount of oxygen and hydrogen used. How about that? After all that oxygen used up by the Ohms engines and fuel cells, you must be guessing at how much was used by the crew. 15,000 pounds? 20,000 pounds? Nope. Try 45 pounds. It doesn't really take much oxygen to keep people alive. And while this didn't happen on the mission, it definitely was a number that caught my eye. While reading through the JSC News Roundup, I took a quick look at the classifieds out of curiosity. Someone named Huey was selling an IBM Personal Computer XT. It came with a 10 megabyte hard drive, 640 kilobytes of RAM, a printer, a surge protector, a mouse, and a monochrome green monitor. All yours for the low, low price of $3,700 once adjusted for inflation. Thanks, Huey, but I think I'm good. Oh, and one last random factoid before we wrap this up. Just a few days after Discovery landed, successfully ending this mission, an old friend of ours blazed through the upper atmosphere of the Earth, ending its own mission. On December 2nd, 1989, the Solar Maximum mission, so memorably repaired by the crew of STS-51C, re-entered the Earth's atmosphere after almost 10 years in space. One day and one trip around the world later than intended, Discovery touched down at Edwards Air Force Base at 4.30 and 19 seconds p.m. Pacific Time, closing out the 5-day, 6-minute, and 49-second mission. Six or so hours later, after arriving back in Texas, Commander Fred Gregory summed up the mission with, We did what we were supposed to do, and we did it right. I guess we'll just have to leave it at that. Real quick before I tease the next episode, I just wanted to let you know that a long-awaited movie commentary has made its way into the Patreon rewards. Space Camp. This incredibly goofy 1986 movie featured a group of kids at Space Camp somehow accidentally ending up on orbit. I won't ruin the surprise, but wow, that movie, uh, certainly exists. If that commentary sounds like fun, head on over to patreon.com slash thespaceaboveus to check it out. Next time. I'm not sure what it is, but I keep having this feeling that we forgot about something. We completed the first iteration of the Tedris constellation. We got those long-awaited interplanetary missions sent on their way. And we even made some progress on the DoD backlog. But still, we're forgetting something. Something left to drift on its own. Far longer than it expected to. Something that needs attention quick if it's ever going to return home in one piece. Ah, yes, that's right. Next time, we're going to finally retrieve the long-duration exposure facility. Only about five years later than planned. Ad Astra, catch you on the next pass. Pass.